The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Friday, August 5th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The federal government has declared monkeypox a public health emergency, and there are some things they want you to know. The CDC page for how it spreads, quite informative. Quote, the direct contact can happen during intimate contact, including oral, anal, and vaginal sex, or touching the genitals, penis, testicles, labia, and vagina, or anus, parentheses, butthole, of a person with monkeypox. CDC's page says butthole a few times. There is a vaccine for monkeypox. There's not enough of a vaccine. But public health communicators and media outlets also need you to know about the big myths. LA Times featured nine cues about the monkeypox virus. The first question, can only gay or bisexual men get monkeypox? Answer, no. They quote Dr. Stuart Burstyn, the National Director of Infectious Diseases for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, as saying it was by chance that monkeypox first infected men who have sex with men. Website wellandgood.com is this article, Six Myths About Monkeypox Doctors Need You to Stop Believing. Three is monkeypox only affects gay and bisexual men. False. It explains it just so happens that the recorded cases so far have disproportionately affected specific communities like men who have sex with men. However, this is correlative and doesn't mean that it is a community-specific infection, says David Harvey, executive director of the National Coalition of STD Directors. Also, we should note it's not an STD. CBS head on a New York Times science writer and led with this. As cases of monkeypox increase around the U.S., so do myths and misinformation about the virus. The idea that it is a, quote, gay man's disease brings back painful memories of bias surrounding the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. Joining us now to dispel those myths and break down the facts is Kavul Sheikh. Here's what Sheikh had to say about gay men and monkeypox, or as the current framing goes, is men who have sex with men. They're still the highest risk group, um, although there have been some cases reported in women and young children. Um, Largely, the virus is limited to uh, to men who have sex with men. And like you mentioned, it's not a gay disease. The virus can't tell what your sexual orientation is. No, it can't because monkeypox doesn't think or operate by magic. Just as the question, can only gay or bisexual men get monkeypox, is impossible to answer in the affirmative, because that is not how viruses possibly work. Gay has many definitions, but a very simple one is same-sex attraction. How would a virus know who a person is attracted to? Monkeypox, I'm sure we're going to start hearing very soon, doesn't discriminate or that it's an equal opportunity disease because that is what is said about literally every disease I could think of that became a public health emergency. Every disease is said to be equal opportunity even when those who suffer are disproportionately of one demographic or overwhelmingly of one demographic or, as is the case with monkeypox, currently 98% of one demographic. 98% of those with it are men who have sex with men. So of the 7,102 cases on the CDC's website, 6,960 are men who have sex with men. Now, it could and probably will spread. And I don't say any of this at all to imply, so no one else should be afraid or, but it's only gay men. But I do think we should be honest. And I also think that it, to some extent, undermines credibility when clearly 
misleading information is not only spread, but emphasized. The point of the emphasis on a disease not only affecting one population or not being sentient and choosing its victims distracts us. And were there painful memories around AIDS because it was thought of as only a gay man's disease or because so many gay men really did succumb to AIDS and because of that fact, America didn't mobilize? I guess the framing, the public health framing, is the fear that if we see it as only a gay men's disease, we won't care. But I think we will. And even if some of us won't, it doesn't matter. Just be truthful and say, and we're going to help everyone who has monkeypox, which right now is 98% men who have sex with men. It does seem that America has poorly mobilized around this disease. The federal government blew windows for getting vaccines in vials in a timely fashion. And the communication that emphasizes dispelling myths that no thinking person could possibly subscribe to doesn't really do a fraction of the harm as this vaccine mismanagement does. Maybe it, in fact, doesn't do any real harm. But it is an odd and off-putting aspect of how we talk and how we think about a public issue, even or especially a public issue of life and death. On the show today, great guest. Did he pay for that slot? But first, we're joined once more by a great guest, Rafael Manguel, author of Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. In this half of the interview, we talk about what can be done. And I do have to say, you should know going in, there's nothing close to an easy answer. The solution is fewer bullets, silver or otherwise. Rafael Manguel up next. We're speaking once more to Rafael A. Manguel, author of Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. There are lots of misperceptions about police brutality. That's true, but it's also true that there is an excess of bad policing. So I first wanted to ask Rafael how he sees policing done well, if it will be done well. As I read his book and as I listened to the first part of our interview, I wasn't optimistic. In fact, one phrase kept rattling around my head, chemotherapy. It's as if we need to focus on these cancerous cells of murderousness and blast them with chemotherapy. And if you know anything about the process, that is not going to be pleasant. There's even a risk that you lose the patient along the way. But after all is done, you may wind up with a healthy patient and a good outcome. And so to Raphael, I ask, is that the best we could do? Yeah, well, that's. I think that's actually a good analogy. It's one that you know Commissioner Bill Bratton often uses uh, in his public talks about this. Um, so uh, I think it's actually uh, um, a very astute point to make. But you know, it's basically right. Yeah, it, it is kind of akin to chemotherapy or you know some kind of of treatment of an underlying disease that is not particularly pleasant, but is the only way to save the patient. Right? It's either certain death or you know, suffering in the meantime, in, in the short term for, for long-term health. And, you know, I, I think if you ask these communities what they want, they'll give you the same answer that they gave you in the 1980s and 90s, right? People forget that it was, you know, low-income black communities that played major roles in things like the Rockefeller drug laws here in New York City, uh, or in the, the, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which established the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. If you go back you know, and look at that legislation, which is largely characterized as one of the sort of most racist, you know, pieces of, of the uh, tough on crime era, um, 
it, it, it was co-sponsored, not just so not just voted for, but co-sponsored by 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus at the time, mm-hmm. right? If you you can go back to to 1990 and watch William F. Buckley, white founder of National Review, debating Charles Rangel, black congressman from Harlem, where Charles Rangel is actually suggesting life in prison for crack dealers, um, and William F. Buckley is arguing for for uh, drug legalization. So, you know, the the black community and low income minority communities in general, I think have have largely been understanding of that unfortunate reality and and want you know the 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 medicine that you know yes is harsh for some people who come in contact with it but again the vast majority of people living even in these pockets of really concentrated crime are good they just want to be able to go about their lives they want to be able to walk out of their house and know hey i'm going to walk to school and home today and i'm not going to have to worry about getting jumped i'm not going to have to worry about what colors i wear yeah Imagine what it would be like to live in a place like West Garfield Park, Chicago, where the homicide rate's 131 per 100,000, where someone gets shot basically every day, where someone gets stabbed basically every day, where someone gets robbed basically every day, where the sort of standard mechanism of dispute resolution is deadly violence. I mean, I don't think most of us, thankfully, can even comprehend what that's like. And the problem that that, that arises as a result of that incomprehension is that it becomes very easy for us to support movements that seek to deny those communities the mechanisms of providing safety, things akin to the kind of chemotherapy analogy that you made that, you know, frankly, they need and want, right? I mean, ask somebody who has cancer and no insurance whether they'd rather have the chemotherapy, right? I think they'd say yes. Um, And I think that's a lot of what we're dealing with. And of course, the answer, I mean, beyond the point where it gets to policing to take our cancer analogy is not to get sick in the first place. So, you know, societal mechanisms to provide for opportunity and wealth. And I do take a little issue in your book. You argue that there's no correlation between poverty and crime. And you use some no causal correlation anyway. Yeah. Well, there does seem, that's my point. There does seem to be a correlation. And even though it may be true that at New York's worst year for murder and best year, quote unquote, best year for murder, poverty was unchanged nationally. I think if you look at the charts, I know if you look at the charts, that you will see a decline in the poverty rate correlate to a decline in the murder rate. Yeah, the decline in the poverty rate, though, is nowhere near as steep as the decline in the murder rate. And, you know, again, you know, when you look at the national statistics, you're aggregating a phenomenon that doesn't happen in the aggregate, um, which is, you know, again, uh, if you look at the, the the neighborhoods in any city, whether it's New York or Philadelphia or Chicago or Louisville, where, you know, crime declined precipitously over the course of the 1990s, in those neighborhoods where crime declined the most, you don't see a change in right. poverty levels. And, and, and that's really, I think, the basic point. And it's not just poverty measures. It's also unemployment measures and measures of income inequality. Um, yes. You know, near so, poverty and, you know, the 300 percent right. of uh, of the poverty line, all the statistics do. Right. And in so fact, the basic back the, that up. And I right. believe, by the way, I believe in your basic premises. Well, first of all, my premise is that there is a correlation. And if you uh, if people are immiserated, they're much more likely to commit crimes. But if you add some better policing on top of that and, you know, New York clearly engaged in better policing, just look at the gun discharge rate. You will see an effect in a drop in crime. Yeah, exactly. And so the you know the question is is do we need to do something about these seemingly intractable societal problems that have, you know, that are kind of common denominators across human history and across societies 
in order to get crime down? Or are there things that we can do in the immediate term to alleviate this problem? And I think the answer to the second question is yes, and the answer to the first question is no. And if we approach the problem from the perspective that we can't really do anything about crime unless we somehow figure out a way to fix this huge societal problem that we've yet to figure out a way to fix, well, then you're just going to delay incredibly important benefits to a community that desperately needs them right now. Right. So let's go to, say, the summer of 2020, and everyone saw that horrible video with George Floyd and people took to the street because of the anger of that, because of anger of other issues of police brutality and, you know, uh, of course, somewhat influenced by the fact that we were stir crazy from a pandemic. But people were very upset by that, and I would say they were right to be upset. And sure. let's not engage in LeBron James, they're hunting us for sport type argument. Let's not engage in the worst arguments. Let's also not talk about that if you polled people, they might say, you know, the cops killed 500 unarmed black people when in fact the Washington Post counts it and it's something like 9 to 12 every year, right. mapping police violence chronicles, you know, 20 or 25 every year. There should be some amount of disquiet over what we saw with George Floyd and other instances, high profile, very upsetting instances. My question for you is, what should the protesters have been demanding? What should the chance have been? I think they should have been demanding exactly what they got, right? I mean, I, I just think about how things played out with Derek Chauvin and the other officers involved. They were immediately fired within 24 hours. They were almost immediately charged thereafter. They were swiftly prosecuted, convicted, sentenced. Justice, okay, so justice for George, that's one. Anything systemic that they sh- that protesters should have been agitating you know, for? The word systemic is, is, that's the important word there, right? Because systemic implies that that sort of interaction characterizes or is fairly characteristic of policing in the United States, and it's not. Okay, I'll grant that, but anything global, anything that, fine, that's the jumping off point. We know how political action works. Now is the time to concentrate our politicians' minds on. I'm just thinking thing about things like uh, the power of unions. I'm thinking about yeah, look, I, uh, I'm, civil <laughs> immunity. These kind of reforms. Do you so, endorse them? No, I, I don't think a lot of the most popular reforms are very likely to produce the kind of outcomes that people want them to produce, right? The reason that these reforms get proposed in the wake of things like George Floyd is because they are thought to be sort of panaceas uh, for the problem of deadly police violence. But deadly police violence, again, one is incredibly rare, so the amount of room for improvement is is pretty slim to begin with. But two, then we have to start asking the questions like, okay, are things like eliminating qualified immunity likely to reduce police violence? I say no. Reason mm-hmm. is, is that qualified immunity, as I get into in the book, is not a particularly common mechanism through which um, lawsuits filed against police officers are disposed of. So just to kind of back up, and sticking with the qualified immunity example, the the sort of argument around qualified immunity works something like this, right? Police officers have this legal immunity of which they can avail themselves in some cases. By virtue of that, they when they go out into the field, they will engage in misbehaviors that they otherwise wouldn't engage in if that immunity didn't exist. And so we want to go ahead and get rid of that immunity so that those officers now have financial skin in the game and will be more likely to behave in the field. Problem is, is that one, qualified immunity very, very rarely uh, is is successful as a defense in, in civil rights lawsuits. 
But more importantly, qualified immunity is not actually the source of financial protection for officers because even when officers are successfully sued, which is most of the time that they're sued, it, it's the, the municipality that actually foots the bill through something called indemnification, which is a very, very widespread practice. So most police officers are indemnified against liability by virtue of either the collective bargaining agreement that's in place or by virtue of, of local or state or municipal statute. So what that means is that as a condition of employment, the municipality will agree to pay whatever the bill is for a lawsuit that arises out of a police officer's discharge of his duties. So even if you got rid of qualified immunity tomorrow, that does nothing about the widespread practice of indemnification, uh, which is what actually gives police officers a source of financial protection. So that's just reason number two why I don't think it's it's going to be uh, uh, particularly useful. Reason number three is that when you're talking about use of force situations, this is something that's been studied for decades. And what researchers consistently find is that police officers do not engage in an analytical framework of decision making when they're in a use of force situation. They revert mm -hmm. to instinct. Mm -hmm. Right, it, they call it an intuitive decision making process. So when you're right. in a, a wrestling match with a perp who's resisting Prescribed arrest, prescribed to some extent by their training, they just right. don't uh, engage in MMA fighting or right. you know go right, right for the gun. But yes, but, but they don't. There, there is it, adrenaline. There is fight or flight. There is not a calculation about what are the eighth order effects of a possible law. Exactly. Okay. Um, now, what about just the power of police unions? It's very hard to discipline officers who have maybe committed num numerous offenses. I know that you are a uh, senior fellow for Manhattan Institute. I can't think of too many other unions that the Manhas Manhattan Institute cheers on. Uh, is the strength of police unions when it comes to disciplining a problem? In Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, wrote, I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago. Um, you know, I'm I'm very skeptical of public sector unions to begin with. Uh, yeah, right. so I don't think police unions are an exception there. Um, what I will say though is that I don't think the public quite understands the degree to which municipalities and cities are more than happy to trade provisions like that 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 offer these kinds of employment protections in exchange for saving money on the front end. And I think that union members would probably be more likely to take higher pay at the front end in, in exchange for losing some of the security. I think that police executives ought to have much more discretion than they have uh, to discipline the officers under their command. Um, and I think a lot of those efforts are often frustrated um, by uh, union protections in, in some ways that are, are good in some cases and in some ways that are not good in others. And so I think that's a real problem. But it's also a problem that's a function of another problem, which is that you know, policing is the kind of career that over time you're building a skill set that doesn't translate into another line of work. So the need and desire for job security is maybe enhanced in that career than it would be in some other lines of work. It's, you know, if you spend eight years, you know, wearing a, a bulletproof vest and a gun on your hip, uh, there's not a lot that that, you know, resume can help you do in the world should you lose that job. And so, you know, I think officers have a, a real interest in, in minimizing the potential financial harm that would come to pass if they were disciplined in some significant way that caused them to be uh, dismissed. And so, but there are ways that you can mitigate that through just better pay at the front end. The city of Chicago, following uh, examples by Portland, Baltimore, Philadelphia, recently passed uh, a policy change that officers cannot shoot 
sorry, officers cannot pursue certain mm-hmm. types of fleeing suspects. Um, they can pursue and engage with suspects who have uh, committed a what's called a class A felony or who they uh, have strong reason to suspect will be committing violence against a member of the public. But and the reason for this is that there were a couple of shootings that stemmed from chases that, if you look at it, they knew where the uh, the perpetrator lived and they could have picked him up more easily. Uh, so on the one hand, you have uh, a reform that the that people who've looked at the department have said is a long time coming. But of course, they, it was only enacted after there were a couple of high-profile high uh, cases that directly fit into what the reform is trying to do away with. On the other hand, I can imagine the police themselves saying, "Oh, so our policy now is just to let to tell people you're free to run." Do you think that that kind of reform is uh, more deleterious or more positive for the overall effort of keeping crime down, but you know, keeping the citizenry safe? Oh, more. Uh, I think it's deleterious on, on both fronts. Will it will <laughs> it reduce um, some some negative uh, 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 police contacts that might result in in serious uses of force with those individuals who are running? Yes, but those individuals are then going to be free to do God knows what else, right? And I, I think it's important to talk about the specific case from which this policy proposal arose, and that was the shooting of Adam Toledo uh, uh, in in Chicago on the west side. I think it was in Little Village. Uh, this was a 13-year-old kid who um, uh, was walking through a dark alley at about 3 in the morning on a Sunday uh, with a 21-year-old gang member, uh, Latin King. Uh, and police responded to that alley because uh, they were responding to a shot spotter alert. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's video of Adam Toledo and the, the, the individual that he was with shooting at a, at a car that was driving by. And police officers responded to that shooting within a couple minutes. And the only two people in their line of sight were Adam Toledo and this other individual. When the police officers made contact, Adam Toledo took off running with a gun in his hand. An officer gave chase uh, about, you know, maybe midway through the alley. Adam Toledo very quickly turned around and in the process of turning around threw his gun behind a fence. A police officer fired one shot, hit him in the chest, and Adam Toledo lost his life. It was incredibly tragic, very difficult video to watch. It's on body camera. Um, You can see the fear kind of enter Toledo's eyes when I think he realizes that he was gravely wounded. You can also see on the body camera footage how distraught the police officer who fired the shot is as soon as he figures out that Toledo was throwing his gun and not turning around to shoot him. Now, I've I've written about this case uh, a couple times. If you look at the body cam footage, you can actually see the time counter. Less than a few milliseconds, a few hundred milliseconds are lapsing between the point at which the gun is visible in Adam Toledo's hand, he begins to turn around, at which point the gun is not visible, it's behind him, and then he lets go of the gun. That officer had no way of knowing that he wasn't turning around to shoot because he was backed into a corner. Um, was it tragic? Is it the outcome that anyone wants to see? Of course, it's not the outcome that anyone wants to see. I don't think that officer left his house that day saying, I hope I get to shoot somebody. And you can just, you can see by how distraught he is that that is not what he wanted to happen. But the other, the other sort of side of that coin is like, do police officers not respond, not give chase? You've got a 13 year old kid firing at, at cars. What if he hits an innocent person? What if he hits a five year old sitting in the back seat? What if that? What if one of those bullets goes into a house and, and into a baby's crib? These are stories that we read about. These are real risks, 
right? And so um, I, I think it's incredibly misguided to say like, hey, we're just gonna we're just gonna create a situation in which police officers are are, are disincentivized from from engaging in pursuits, even in these really really important cases where individuals are are dangerous and pose real risks to the communities, as illustrated by the fact that they just engaged in the shooting, um, and that's exactly what's happening, right? There was um, a, um, a radio traffic clip that went viral out of the city of Chicago just a couple weeks ago, where police officers witnessed the shooting and the shooters got into a car. Police officers gave chase and then asked their supervisor for permission to continue the pursuit. And they were told to terminate it. Mm -hmm. And you can hear the officers over the air just saying, this is a joke. This is ridiculous. But that's that's what the reality of this kind of policy is designed uh, to create. And I, I, again, I don't think that that's going to help any of the people living in the communities with the biggest problems. Rafael Mangual is the author of Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael, great to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And now the spiel. First, some FTC non-mandated disclosures. The most I have ever paid for a guest to come on the gist, zero dollars. Pete Buttigieg, zero dollars. Norman Lear, zero dollars. Soon we're going to have AOL founder, billionaire Steve Kason. You'd think the guy wouldn't need the money. He doesn't. But also we didn't offer, zero dollars. But the least I've ever paid a guest, also zero dollars. But Bloomberg reporter Ashley Carmen found podcasters who are different than I am. There's a podcast called Entrepreneurs on Fire that charges $3,500 for you to be a guest on their show. Truth in advertising, with that revelation, the entrepreneur in question's business has probably gone to hell. Here's a fun little outfit called The Skinny Confidential, him and her podcast. From the intro, we'll play the intro to an interview with Shervin Jafaria, the CEO of a company called Symbiotica, which isn't a word, but if it were, it wouldn't be spelled with a C and a K. This outfit sells things like coated silver pills and longevity mushrooms. Here is host Michael Bostick. This episode is perfect for everybody that is interested in taking their health to the next level. We really go all over the place in this one with Shervin. He is a wealth of knowledge and we get- Jeffaria dug into some of that wealth to appear on the show. Ashley Carmen reported for Bloomberg that the Skinny Confidential, TSC, charges between twenty dollars and $40,000 per interview. With a reported 350,000 listeners, this means guests on the show are paying somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred dollars per every pair of ears they're hitting. That, by the way, is an astronomically high rate to advertise anywhere. However, that rate, if true, may be justified, maybe, if listeners didn't know it was an advertisement. And before Ashley Carmen's article, it wasn't clear that they did know that. Now, post-article, the show added this disclaimer. This episode is brought to you by Symbiotica. As all media matures, best business practices develop, and podcasting is no different. Bloggers used to not disclose free products they got or even paid placement. Now the FTC requires they do. YouTube stars like the video gamer TM Martin was caught out playing games for prizes. Only those games were from a company he owns. And the problem was he didn't disclose he owned them. Well, he says he did maybe once or twice in this video apology, which is largely regarded as a disastrous version of the form. 
I don't understand why it's this big breaking news now because it's never been like under wraps. It's never been a secret. No, we haven't gone around like bragging about it and saying like, oh yeah, we own the site and you know, all over social media and stuff like that. But it's also never been a secret. It's been mentioned in videos before. It's been mentioned on live streams before. It's, um, you know, it's, it's never like been this big, scary, hidden thing, I, I guess is, is kind of what people are making it out to be. Martin was made to issue proper disclosures from the FTC. He did avoid fines. Podcasting is also governed by the FTC. All influencers are. But Ashley Carmen found out that some pay-to-play pods ignore these guidelines. And they are guidelines, not requirements. An entrepreneur named Dave Asprey charges guests an average of $50,000 to appear on his podcast, The Human Upgrade. Asprey is the creator of Bulletproof Coffee, the human upgrade used to be called Bulletproof Radio, I guess they upgraded, and Asprey's a long-ago guest of Joe Rogan. But by 2014, Rogan had soured on Asprey's claims around the health benefits of his coffee. So I, I kind of feel like it might. there's some bullshit there, for sure. And uh, I, although I like the guy, he gets shit wrong, and I don't know if he's always that good about recognizing when he has done that and correcting himself. Asprey has since discovered the power of hosting his own podcast and has leveraged that to charge guests 50 grand. Though rarely does he do so, he told Bloomberg, less than 1% of the time, he said, but audience members are not told which 1%. Asprey's claims, judging by his number of downloads, his chart position, his reported rates, make me deeply question why anyone would possibly pay that price to be interviewed on a podcast with a respectable but not massive audience. Calculated in the advertising jargon of CPM or cost per thousand. Why thousand for M? Because M is mille for Latin for thousand. Anyway, Asprey's probably getting rates in the hundreds of dollars. That's really high, super high, many times more than even luxury advertisers like private jet magazines charge. The podcasters engaging in pay-to-play are quoted in Carmen's piece as saying, what's the difference between a guest paying to be on a show and a guest hiring a PR firm to get the guest on a show? Well, for one thing, there's the question of editorial discretion, even the upgraded human space, that is important, but for another, a paid guest won't be vetted, questioned, or scrutinized like an actual guest would, even by shows that have such low levels of scrutiny to begin with that they would pay guests. You know, when I worked for NPR, I I sometimes had this thought. I'd put a report out on NPR, it would reach two or three million people. NPR valued my job at my salary, it was like, you know, $40 an hour or whatever that worked out to. So if I work for a day and a half on that report, my work was valued for $400. Fair. To certain subjects, the value of the publicity they were getting, it was close to tens of thousands of dollars, maybe more. But so what? This was a curiosity. What was I going to charge or engage in payola? That's a little like a cop saying, hmm, I get paid $75,000 a year, but if I stop a murder, that's worth millions of dollars to the family or the murdered person. In fact, the government does put a value of $10 million per statistical life. A $15 an hour security guard may be protecting $15 million in jewelry. Again, so what? Not only would taking that jewelry be stealing a criminal and ethical offense, but as soon as you trade on your status, you devalue it. And this is what these podcasters should know. Charging some guests makes the audience value all guests a lot less. I think 
a lot of the podcasters quoted actually know this. In fact, here's my theory. I think they may have been telling Ashley much higher rates than they usually charge. Sort of saying, well, I usually charge 50, but for you, 20, and maybe that $20,000 guest slash sucker feels like they got a bargain. Another possibility is they float a number out there, an impossibly high number. Yeah, we charge 50,000 to be on my show. This is an opportunity that retails for $50,000. So when Asprey then hits up someone else to be on his show, maybe the guest will say to themselves something like, wow, I now get the chance to do it for free. In any case, I doubt it's a very wide widespread practice, at least among the podcasts you probably listen to. I went to a marketplace that was cited in the article, and I didn't recognize any of the podcasts that were named, and I put them through a search engine that tells me how popular they are, and the answer is not. And these are the kind of podcasts, I don't know, I'm going to say they don't have much overlap with you, the gist audience, judging by your fine taste and the discernment that brought you here. I should also say in the Bloomberg article, there was one example of a guest mentioned by name who charges hosts to interview him. That guest was boxer Manny Pacquiao. So for you, my listeners, I bring you the sultry strains of the Pac-Man at no charge to myself, and I shall pass the savings on to you. You ask me if I love you, and I talk on my reply. I'd rather hurt you honestly than mislead you with a lie. By the way, ever wonder what drew Pacquiao to this song? Here's a lyric, still trapped within my truth, a hesitant prize fighter, still trapped within my youth. For a man who charges $15,000 per podcast appearance, he'd rather hurt you honestly than mislead you with a lie. And sometimes when we touch, the honesty's too much. And I have to close my eyes in And that's it for today's show. For $38, he asked me to give him a cool nickname. So the assistant producer of The Gist is Corey the Wolverine Wara. Senior producer Joel Patterson only slipped me $13 so we could call him out on parole Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CEO of Peachfish Productions, and you can be too for 50 grand. Plus, you have to pay my health care. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oopru, Gpru, Dupru, and thanks for listening. I'm just a